Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, Dave Ansell and Chris Smith. It's time to go to our first question. This one for Dr. Dave, I would say, Dr. Dave. Um, An email that's come in from Jeff in Southminster. He says, for the naked scientists, what is it that if a plane, say flying at 20,000 feet in bright sunlight, clear sky, can cast a shadow on the ground exactly the same size of the aeroplane? Why is it, Dr. Dave? I don't know if it would cast a shadow. Oh, it'll cast a shadow almost the same size as the aeroplane, basically because the sun is a very, very, very long way away, um, which means the if, if you're trying to cast a shadow from something close to you, like a light bulb or something, the light is spreading out from that light bulb quite a lot. If you look at the angles, it's spreading out quite a lot. So the shadow behind you is going to be a lot bigger. The light which you block is going to use up a lot more space behind you, much bigger than you are. But if you're using sunlight, because the sun is so far away... Um, I can't remember the numbers, of, I think about 80 million miles away, then the distance between the um, plane and the ground is very small compared to that. So the shadow should be similar size to the plane. It'll actually end up being very fuzzed out because by the time you're that far up, there won't be any part of the ground which you won't be able to see a part of the sun because the plane won't block out the whole sun anywhere. So you'll get a very kind of fuzzy and weak shadow, but it should be about the same size as the plane. Mm. All right, Dr Dave, thank you very much. Dr. Chris, you're our health specialist. Bill from Huntingdon wants to know if it's possible to contact HIV from a mosquito who has bitten someone who is infected. Dr. Chris. Uh, Well, good question, Bill. And lots of people were very worried about this because if you look at HIV statistics, about 4 million new people are getting infected with HIV every single year the vast majority of them in sub-Saharan Africa. And, of course, in sub-Saharan Africa, there's also a lot of mosquitoes because malaria is a big problem there. That's the sign we have that there are lots of mosquitoes there. And so people thought, well, if mosquitoes can suck blood from an individual and they can then suck blood from another individual and they can transmit malaria, what's the likelihood they might be able to transmit another virus like HIV? Well, the answer is they can't. So the reassuring answer is there's no risk. The reason for that is quite simple, that malaria, although you suck up only a tiny volume of blood into a mosquito, uh, and that includes a few malarial parasites, when the parasites get into the mosquito, they're optimised so they invade the stomach lining of the mosquito and they begin to replicate or grow. So in other words, the dose of malaria is amplified inside the vector, the mosquito, so that when it next goes and bites someone, it's increased the amount of infectious malaria a large amount, and it then injects that large amount back into the next victim, which is how it spreads. But with HIV, HIV is very, very um, specific for one type of cell that it likes to infect, or one one cell marker in the immune system. That's called CD4 and CCR5. And it only also infects humans. You only find HIV in humans. You can find a close relative in the chimpanzee and primate and monkey world, but it's not the same as HIV. So HIV is very specific for humans. That means that HIV cannot infect a mosquito. So when the mosquito drinks blood from someone who has HIV, or one of the other human viruses like hepatitis B, for example, which is also spread by blood and is very common in Africa, when it gets inside the mosquito, 
The virus is very fragile, and the mosquito's digestive juices break it down anyway, and because it can't infect the mosquito, it can't increase its numbers inside the mosquito. So when the mosquito next bites someone, then it doesn't actually have any more virus to inject, and since it's sucked up a tiny amount anyway, the numbers are vanishingly small. So what we have found is that there is no risk of a mosquito being able to spread blood-borne viruses like HIV and hepatitis B, and if there is a risk, it's absolutely infinitesimally small. Thank you very much, Dr Chris. Dr Dave, I think this is one for you. Foxy asks, what's the situation with this disease affecting horse chestnut trees? Does it spell the end of the road for them, like the Dutch elm disease did for the elms in the 1980s? Dr Dave. I think what he's talking about is something called bleeding canker, which is caused by a bacteria which gets into the trunk trunk of the um, horse chestnut and basically causes sap to fall out and lesions which use liquid um, from the trunks that can can actually kill the trees. Apparently up to about half of the horse chestnut trees in the country are affected, up to sort of 70% in the south of of the country, um, which doesn't look particularly good. And it does look like it's going to affect most of the trees, but there is some evidence that there are entirely healthy trees sitting next to lots of other infected trees. So it looks like some of the trees have a natural resistance to this disease. So although it might wipe out most of the horse chestnuts, it almost certainly won't wipe them all out. So there'll be other trees left which we can grow more horse chestnuts from in the future. Let's hope so, otherwise we won't have our conkers, will we? Now, Dr Chris, one for you this time. Jim from Mablethorpe had his gallbladder out in April. The doctor said it would be one or two months before he could eat what he liked, but he still can't now. Chris, what's your opinion on this for Jim? Well, let's talk about what the gallbladder is. Um, the gallbladder is a sack. It's a, probably about five centimetres by about three centimetres in a normal healthy person. And it sits just below the liver and uh, a pipe comes out of the liver called the bile duct. It runs into the gallbladder, and there's a sort of T-junction where the pipe branches and it goes into the gallbladder and also carries on straight down through your pancreas. It doesn't actually merge with the duct in the pancreas until right up close to your intestine, and then it opens into the intestine at something called the ampulla of Vata. And what the gallbladder is is a repository or a storage site for bile. And the liver makes bile by breaking down a number of things, including the the pigment that you find in your red blood cells, haemoglobin. It breaks open haemoglobin molecules and it produces a derivative of haemoglobin called bilirubin. And this gets broken down into a number of other chemicals. But but the, the key component in bile is bilirubin. And it also adds to the bile a number of other things, including cholesterol and some phospholipids. So you have this fatty mixture, which the liver uses to break up fat droplets. So when you eat a fatty meal, the liver squirts out from the gallbladder some of this bile, which mixes with the intestinal contents. It then surrounds the droplets of bile and breaks them up, uh, the droplets of fat, and breaks them up. Because if you have a big blob of fat, fat doesn't like water, so fat or oil and water won't mix. So the fat forms droplets and the water forms droplets, and they tend to form big droplets, and that makes it very hard to absorb or break down and digest. So if you put bile with that, what the bile does is to break up the big droplets into very tiny droplets. They're called micelles, and it does that because part of the, the molecules in the bile love water, and the other half of the molecule hates water. And so by mixing these molecules with the fat, you get these tiny droplets, which are very much smaller, so they have a very big surface area to volume ratio, and this makes it very easy for enzymes like lipases, they come from your pancreas, to attack the fat, break it up, and then make it possible for your intestines to absorb it. 
So the gallbladder stores up uh, bile for when you have a fatty meal. The intestine senses when you've eaten lots of fat. It produces a hormone which goes into the bloodstream, up to the liver, and tells the liver, squirt some bile into the intestine. Now, because bile has got all these salts in it, the bile salts and the cholesterol and the phospholipids, then it has to sit in the gallbladder for quite some time between meals. And this mixture can sometimes precipitate out in the same way as you can sometimes get scale building up in your kettle. You get the sort of fatty equivalent in your gallbladder, and these are gallstones. And so you get these initially very small stones, but once you've got one stone or a number of little stones, it's much easier for more stones to begin to form. That's called nucleation. So you form these stones in the gallbladder, and they can sit there quite happily without causing any problems. But if they move, they can begin to cause all kinds of problems because sometimes they can be large enough to actually block the duct so that the bile can get out of the gallbladder. And this means the gallbladder ends up squeezing to try and push bile out, but it can't get the bile out because there's a gallstone blocking the duct. And this is painful, and this is what causes biliary colic. People get gallbladder pain, and you feel that up in the upper right part of the abdomen, usually every time you eat something fatty. That's why people are warned if they have these pains brought on by fatty, by fatty meals that it could be worth having your gallbladder checked out. Now, the cure for this is to go and visit a surgeon who will usually remove your gallbladder for you, and this usually gets rid of the problem because there's nowhere now for the bile to form stones. And if you don't have any stones, you can't have the problem. Um, usually it takes a little while for things to settle down, but sometimes it doesn't settle down. It can take a bit longer. I can't comment on individual cases like Jim because I'm not his doctor and I also don't know his case. Um, but, but what I can say is that most of the time when you take away the gallbladder in this way, people feel much better because you, you don't have these gallstones jammed in the neck of your gallbladder anymore, so, you, so the pain goes away. can be very painful as well, I believe. Um, not had first-hand experience. I don't think I want it. Right, OK, I'm not sure whether we should say Dr Chris or Dr Dave for this one, um, but Dave from Bradwell is on the line and he has a question. Dave, what's your uh, question? Oh, so Hello, guys. Uh, just a wonder, um, you know, we, we as, as we're now all, t- well, not all, but most of us are took up in the uh, Olympic Games and how wonderful uh, Britain is doing in it. I wonder just how far the people think we can take this. Records are being beaten year after year. How far do you think we can go? OK, Dave, so um, is there a limit at which humans could not run any faster? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, about that. OK, all yeah. right. I think, well, let's look at this uh, in several ways. I mean, one of the, the key things going on here is that we are seeing slow and gradual improvements in the performance of athletes. And there's a number of reasons for this. One of them is that people are getting better at training because we've identified what works and the message is getting across. People now know how to build up the body how to get the body into tip-top condition. So human performance is improving. That's the first point. The second point is that the actual equipment that people have got to train with and train on is improving. We did a piece on the Naked Scientists about three or four months ago where we went to Loughborough University where scientists there are very into their sports science and they are studying how the human body produces the forces and movements that it does and they're working out how pieces of equipment and, and for instance something as mundane as a shoe can help you to develop much more force from the same muscle and the same joint, the same bone structure enabling you to speed up enormously. So for instance by putting a, a sole of a shoe on a, a pair of running spikes which is 
is absolutely rigid, it stops the foot flexing, and this means that much more of the force generated by the muscles, which accelerate the athlete away from the blocks, actually turn into useful movement than the actual energy that gets wasted by flexing the sole of a shoe. So you're not wasting so much energy. So it's a number of factors, and I think what we're going to see is a, a progressive increase like this as more and more people get better at training, we're going to see a gentle improvement, but there will be a theoretical maximum at which the human body cannot improve any further. And then we have to begin to blame better running equipment and better running environments. Thank you for your question, Dave. Right, Dr. Dave, here comes one for you. Jeff has asked, why can't perpetual motion work? That is, spin a generator giving an output of, say, 24 volts and then feed that voltage back to the generator to drive it. Why does that not work? Okay, the problem is all down to what's called energy. Energy is sort of the way the universe sort of keeps count. It's like the counting system virtually. If your generator is spinning and it's got a whole lot of energy, what we can do is transform energy into one type to another type to another type, but we, can, we can't make it or destroy it. So when you convert, uh, when you use a generator and it converts kinetic energy of the generator spinning into electrical energy, not quite all of that energy will get converted from kinetic energy into electrical energy some will get converted into heat and then as the electricity flows around the wires some more will get converted to heat and then by the time it's got back to the generator there's going to be slightly less energy that slightly less energy is going to get back to the generator than left it so every time that cycle goes around you get less and less energy in the system and more and more heat and so the generator will slow down and whilst it'd be very nice to be able to build a perpetual motion machine and loads and loads of people have tried again and again and again it never seems to work it seems to be one of the really fundamental laws of physics that you can't get anything for, you can't get something from nothing you can't generate energy from nowhere and unfortunately perpetual which means that perpetual motions don't machines don't work it's just not going to work now dr chris lynn from colchester wants to know your opinion on cellulitis some say it's contagious some say it's not what do you think well, the answer is, uh, Lynn, it definitely is contagious because it's caused by a type of streptococcus. These are tiny bacteria, gram-positive bacteria, which eat away at your skin. In fact, they attack the deeper layer of the skin where the skin joins the underlying tissues in the body. And this is a, a structure called the deep dermis. And uh, the, these particular bacteria, streptococci, in fact, one particular class of streptococci, group A streptococci, strep pyogenes, produce various factors which they ooze from the bacterium, which break open tissue. The idea being that if they bust open our own cells, then the cells leach out the things that they use to grow, and this means that the bacteria can then hoover up those chemicals and use them for their own growth. That's why bacteria do that. They're very easy to transmit. Things like strep pyogenes, if you have them uh, on, on a lesion, an open infectious lesion, then you can transmit them. But once, when the bacteria are ensconced deep within your own tissues, then probably it's less infectious, less of a problem, because it's deep in your tissues causing you problems rather than it being able to jump onto somebody else. But you can definitely transmit it. Not to be confused with cellulite, which is what celebrities are obsessed with, and this is the thing that makes your bum look all, all bobbly, uh, and that's just a problem to do with how the fat is locked away into little pockets in uh, various bits of tissue around the back of your thighs and it's fibrous tissue the reason you get that stippled effect is because there are bands of fibrous tissue around the blobs of fat cells and the fat bulges out from around the fibrous tissue a bit like if you wear a pair of trousers that's too tight and you sort of bulge out in all the wrong places it's the same thing happening with with fat in these fibrous compartments and that's what cellulite is that's definitely not a problem in terms of it being infectious or a danger to life but cellulitis definitely is and you need prompt hospital treatment you can recognize cellulitis because the tissue is very very hot 
hot, it's red, there's a margin or a border which spreads. And when you go to hospital, if people think you might have it, they draw a line along the edge of the red border and then they track where the line goes. And if the line is advancing, it suggests that your treatment is not working and you have to switch to an antibiotic that does work. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Now then, Dr. Chris, Gary has asked, can you ask, Chris, why women get fat in different places to men? Dr. Chris. It's a difficult one, and scientists are struggling to understand that because it actually tells us, if we can solve that question, a lot more about how the body works than, than just a cosmetic issue. Because traditionally, women are viewed as what are called pears because if you look at where women tend to put on fat, it tends to be bum and hips. Whereas if you look at men, they tend to be described as apples because the weight all goes on around your middle. You get a beer gut, traditionally, in men. Not everyone's like that, but the vast majority. And the interesting thing is that if you look at that, that distribution of fat, and, and specifically a way of assessing it called the waist-to-hip ratio, in other words, if you put a tape measure around your hips and a tape measure around your waist, and you compare the two sizes, if you have a big waist-to-hip ratio, in other words, you're much bigger around the middle than you are around the bum, uh, then your risk of things like heart attacks, cardiovascular disease, is much, much higher. Your cholesterol level is often a lot higher. So in other words, women have a much healthier fat distribution than men do when they gain excess weight. Why? Well, scientists want to understand exactly what's going on biochemically to make that happen, and it must be something to do with female hormones. And one possible reason why women accumulate fat in the way that they do and in a healthier way is because women have to breastfeed and rear young. And this is a convenient way of storing a lot of energy. Fat is incredibly energy dense. There's about nine times as much energy in the same amount of fat as there is in the same amount of sugar. So it's a very energy dense food. And so you can store enormous amounts of it. And if you store it in a place that's not going to harm your health, then that means you can lock away that energy. And when you're breastfeeding, if you fall on hard times and you can't eat, for instance, you can still make sure your baby gets nourishment. Men, on the other hand, because they don't have to breastfeed, don't have this kind of fat distribution situation going on. So they tend to lay the fat down around their internal organs and around their middle. So we think it's something to do with hormones, but no one understands exactly there's something special about that abdominal fat and there's something special about the way women deposit fat around their body. Because just by putting a, a person in a CT scanner and measuring the fat thickness under the skin, you can easily tell a man from a woman because women's fat distribution is much thicker under the skin than men's is. And if you immerse a lady and a man in very cold water, it's always the man who dies of exposure first because women are much better insulated. It must be something to do with hormones. We just don't know what yet. Oh, I will remember that one. Yes, I've got mine well distributed. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Chris. Dr. Dave, here's one for you, I believe. Um, Marcus in London asks where the energy in our body is transferred to after our death if all energy must go somewhere. Dr. Dave. Well, I guess the first thing to ask is where is the energy in your body? Now, there's a little tiny bit of energy of things moving around, like blood, blood pumping around, but that, as soon as you die, that's going to stop pretty much, um, and you get a bit of turbulence, and that'll get converted to heat. Um, the other, another source of energy, type of energy in your body is heat, which, um, as you slowly cool down, that heat's going to get slowly get lost into the atmosphere or into the ground which you're lying in. Um, so that would just gently get lost 
And then when most of the energy, as Chris was saying earlier, in your body is in things like fat, in your tissues, it's sort of basically chemical energy inside you. Um, if, you dried yourself, if you dried a person out and set fire to them, they'd burn and give off quite a lot of energy. Um, now, where does that energy go? Uh, it kind of depends what happens to you after you die. If you um, get um, cremated, then that end- you'll, you'll be burnt and that energy, will, all of the f- fats and the tissues will get reacted with oxygen. Energy will get released in that way. If you get buried underground, then the energy is probably going to end up in worms um, and bacteria and all of the kind of scavenging creatures um, live in the ground. The way they get their energy is by eating dead things, um, be it leaves, dead animals, or for that matter, dead humans. So it'll probably go into animals or fungi or bacteria. So basically, yeah, you'll get eaten and the en- most of the energy will get going to other creatures. Charming. Thank you very much, Dr. Dave. Now, not quite sure who we shall direct this one to, but Daniel has been on holiday. He said he had to go on an aeroplane for the first time this year to go to Greece, which is good. Um, Apart from the checking queue, something else was irritating him during his travelling, and this was the continued popping in his ears on the takeoff. Just why does this happen? Dr. Dave or Dr. Chris? Um, Now... The way your ears work, ears are machines for sensing sound, uh, and sound is a vibration in the air, so you've got to have something which will detect a vibration in the air. And the first thing which does that in your ears is a, is what's called the eardrum. It's like a drum skin. If you ever put a drum very near a, a loud, loudspeaker, you can see it vibrating. So when sound hits your eardrum, it vibrates. It's then um, taken to your um, cochlea through a couple of bones, um, and then it vibrates the cochlea, and then you can do all sorts of clever things, which is the reason why you can actually hear. But that eardrum is what does the first, which first transfers the um, movements of the air into movements of something physical, something more phys- more solid. Um, and so basically, this eardrum is it, behind that is a chamber which is not very well attached to the rest to the rest of the world, um, and full of air. Now, if you go up in a plane, um, the, you're going high, to a higher at- altitude, and there's less air above you pushing down, compressing the air. So the air pressure reduces. And so if you go up, then the air wants to try and expand. I don't know if you've ever taken a bag of crisps on an aeroplane. And if you're down at the bottom, they're kind of quite loose and normal. But if, once you get up high, then they're really, really tight and want to explode. We'll all be trying that later, <laughs> Dr. Dave. Or if you've ever opened a, a bottle of water uh, up in the air, even a, a flat bottle of water sort of it, it, when you open it, because the air inside wants to expand as it c- comes out. So the air inside your, behind your eardrum is trying to expand, and that pushes on your eardrum, and that's really quite un- unpleasant. And that's what that's um, so that's why you think that you can't hear as well because the eardrum is very very taut and it can't move as much with the sound. It can actually get quite painful. Then when you swallow, it opens up a tube between. I, Chris would know better than me, but, but between uh, from your ear it goes down to your nose. Is it Chris? Yeah, you have something called the eustachian tube which is a tiny tube on each side from roughly the back of your nose, which runs sideways from the nose to uh, the eardrum, the middle ear. So that's the space behind the eardrum and between the cochlea. There's a cavity there, as Dave says. And the air that, that is trapped in there gets under pressure when um, you put pressure on the eardrum from outside. And when you go up in the aeroplane, air- as Dave says, you take the pressure off the eardrum, so this expands this space, and the eustachian tube allows air to rush from your mouth cavity nose cavity back into the middle ear to equalise the pressure but the tube is partially blocked off and swallowing or holding your nose and blowing down your nose against your closed closed nose pinched closed with your fingers helps to force air along that eustachian tube 
into the middle ear, equalising the pressure. And that's why divers do the same thing. When divers are descending underwater, scuba divers this is, then the pressure of the water pushing in on their eardrums does the opposite. It squashes the air in the middle ear, makes it very uncomfortable because it's now stretching the eardrum inwards. And as you descend, if you hold your nose and blow down your nose, this forces air along the eustachian tube back against the eardrum, increasing the pressure in your middle ear, forcing the eardrum out, taking the pressure, effectively the, the inward pressure, off a bit, and this makes you more comfortable. And when you equalise the pressures, that the eardrum's going to move, and whenever the eardrum moves, you hear that as a sound, and that's the popping sound you hear. Gordon from Norwich is on the phone. Hello, Gordon. Hello. What's, hello. Can what's you your, hear me? I can indeed. What's, your, what's your question? Uh, can you tell me what sense do you lose first when you undergo a general anaesthetic? Well, I've had a general anaesthetic, Gordon, when I was a lot littler, but uh, I don't seem to remember anything in particular going first, apart from the fact that I just zonked out. And I remember waking up very, very slowly. I became aware as I woke up of people talking, and people could ask me questions, and I would answer the questions, but in a sort of disembodied kind of way. Uh, it was almost like I was listening to myself, having a conversation about myself, and I wasn't actually part of it. Um, I don't think people really really can say wh which modality, in other words, which sensory function goes exactly first. But, but if we take a good example, which is nitrous oxide, that's laughing yeah, gas, the yeah. stuff that Humphrey Davy discovered. Um, what he found was that people couldn't be anaesthetised totally with nitrous oxide, but what would happen is they became much less sensitive to pain. So in other words, it was disrupting their pain pathways and it wasn't capable of completely knocking them out. And that's why Entonox, a mixture of nitrous oxide and, and air, oxygen, is good for women who are having labour pains because it's very good at dulling pain without actually knocking you off because if you go to sleep when you're trying to have a baby, that could be something of a problem. Uh, so I think probably gentle reduction in neurological function, including a reduction in the ability to sense pain, is probably where it kicks off. And then as you go into denser and denser anaesthesia, then you lose more and more of your conscious ability to respond to the stimuli. In other words, pinprick, pain, that kind of thing. Because if you look at people who are undergoing anaesthesia, even people who are lightly anaesthetised, if you do something painful to them, they will actually react. And it's, it's just that they're not consciously aware of that happening to them. And so that's why surgeons tend to either ask the anaesthetist to make the patient a bit more anaesthetised or a drug is used to paralyse the patient whilst they're asleep and this makes all their muscles relax because otherwise people will try and react against the thing that the person is doing to them. So in other words, you're not completely abolishing the ability of the body to register things going on around it. You're just probably abolishing the ability of the brain to unite all of those things and generate our conscious perception of the world. And, and I think that's probably the best I can do because general anaesthesia is very difficult to understand. Despite 100 years plus of study, we don't understand how general anaesthetics work. The best guess is that they are, because we know a bit about what they are, they're all volatile chemicals. They're chemicals that very readily go from a liquid into a gas. You breathe them in and they dissolve in the bloodstream to a greater or lesser extent. And then they come out of the blood and they dissolve in your brain. They go into the membranes, the oily sacs that surround each of your nerve cells, and they in some way, and we, this is where our knowledge of them gets foggy, they in some way actually affect the ability of the nerve cell to convey chemical messages across its nerve cell membrane, and this makes the cell much less uh, excitable, and as a result, 
you get anaesthetized. And a very interesting study was done on a noble gas called xenon. And no one understands why, but xenon is an excellent general anaesthetic. It makes you feel very, very sleepy, but it's very expensive. So much better to go and have some of the other um, things that are on offer at, at the local hospital. But that's the best I can do in terms of how general anaesthetic works. I've, I don't know. I've definitely heard some stories as well, Chris, that um, hearing goes very late um, under anaesthesia because there are an awful lot of stories of people who've been um, knocked out, apparently completely out, but then in the when they wake up again completely, they can remember exactly what the surgeon has been saying and that possibly surgeons should be more careful about what they're saying while, while people are apparently entirely anaesthetised. This could be part of the, of the uh, muscle paralysis, though, Dave, because yeah, okay. when people are anaesthetised, their eyes are closed, and if they've got muscle paralysis agents on board, they can't open their eyes to see, but they can still hear. And so that, that could be sort of blurring the, the equation a bit. So it's difficult to know, isn't it? Thank you, Gordon. It's lovely that you've been on the show. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. 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 Now, I have a question. Dr. Dave. Dr. Chris, you'll probably giggle when I say this. Um, all around the counties and everywhere, I see all different types of water towers. <laughs> but what goes on in a water tower? Somebody put my mind <laughs> at rest. OK, right. A water tower, as its name suggests, is to do with water. I don't know if you've ever been to hilly parts of the countryside. Yes. You don't see many water towers when ah. they're hills, but you get a lot of them in flat places. And the reason is, for water to come out of your tap, it needs to be under some pressure. And the easiest way to put something under water under pressure is to take a bag or a box of it, put it high up, and then attach a pipe downwards, and the water will run down through the pipe, because water runs downhill. So if you're in a hilly area, you put a little reservoir at the top of a hill, you then occasionally pump water up to it from the river or, or the lake, wherever you're getting the water from, pump it up to the top of the hill, and then the water will run down to all the houses lower down. The problem is, when you're in somewhere like Cambridgeshire, it's dead flat, there's mm. no hills to put the little reservoirs up on, so you've got to build your own hill. So you build a tower, put a big tank at the top of it, and then pump water up when you need it to, when you need to, and then the tank sort of runs out slowly, then when it gets empty, it trick, flicks a switch and you pump more water up. Um, because it's quite inefficient to run pumps all the time to produce a constant pressure. It's much easier just to pump pump water continuously up to a big upper hill, leave it there until people use up enough, and then you pump some more up. Gosh, so what's the energy factor then in all that pumping of the water to get... Because some water towers are massive. Um, I, I mean, the size of them will probably be to do with how, I mean, how, how many people they're supplying. Uh, it will use some energy, but there's not that much... You don't use that much energy lifting water up. You'll know, need some big pumps, but it won't be too bad. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Naked Scientists.